Welcome again, everyone watching at home or watching online uh, to here to the second Sunday in Advent. Um, before I get started, I just got a simple question. How many of you have been camping? Raise your hand if you've ever been camping overnight. Have you ever been out in the wilderness a week or more? No? Weren't you like just there last night? <laughs> I always look to students to end. So, yes. Um, and uh, I've, I've done uh, camping trips as much as 10 days uh, in, in a row. That's kind of a good, uh, that's a good time amount, I've always felt. Um, you ever gone camping with your kids? That one I can't raise my hand. Um, I had all sorts of dreams when I was in college. I was going to teach my kids to be all outdoorsy. And it didn't quite work out that way. Um, yeah, one of the things I learned leading camping groups with kids, I was a camp counselor. I did, it, I did these trips in high school, but I also led some of them, uh, is I learned a lot that camp can be, for some, a very life-changing experience. It can be the thing that will transform them forever. Uh, it will be the thing that will help them detox from the drama of their own lives, uh, detox from the technology. They'll have a whole new view of God and the world. And, but I also learned that not everyone took it quite as quickly. Some struggled to get there. Uh, and I learned that there are like five stages of first time camping. There's five stages. The first one is denial. It's denial. Wait, you don't really mean I'm going to carry all that all by myself? Or you hear something like, I am not, I, there is no way I am going to try to use a leaf when we run out of toilet paper. And I'd always say, well, what's your alternative? They didn't have a good answer to that. Or, or they'd say, you cannot be serious that I'm going out into the wilderness without my butane hair curler. That was kind of what I remember from a kid, right? In the 80s, you had to have the big hair. Well, how do you get big hair? You got to have a butane-powered hair curler. And, and, you know, what could possibly go wrong carrying butane around, you know? So that's denial. This isn't really happening. The second level. Uh, in camping is anger. You get anger, right? You can take your chore list and shove it. Or uh, I'm not listening to one more story about loving creation and leaving no trace and being in harmony with the birds. I don't care if they all die. And then, as always, you're ruining my life. We have bargaining. Bargaining comes about the next phase. Okay, okay, uh, if you do some of the wood splitting, I'll buy you a blizzard when we get home. Or it can get much worse. They can get into depression. Step four. This is the worst week ever. I hate every bit of it. I miss my phone and my video games. This is the worst thing I've ever done. <coughs> and then eventually you get acceptance. All right, I kind of forgotten about the phone and the messages and all the drama. It's actually kind of nice. 
These are the five stages of camping. Now, I won't lie, not everyone made it to acceptance. Some stayed angry forever. You can't win them all, right? But one of the things you learn when you can't do camping is uh, you get used to everything being hard. That's one, of the, that's one of the adaptations. You have to get used to everything being hard. You know, everything cooking is hard. You know, you got to gather wood and split it and cut it and start a fire just to get that hot chocolate. You, you know, it's not just like swinging through the Wendy's. And the ground, the ground is hard. You know, you walk on hard ground and you sleep on hard ground and you sit on hard ground and everything's hard. You know, you even can lay out your foam pad at night and there'll still be a rock and a root under there somewhere. Everything around you is hard. Unless you're in Arizona in which some things are hard and they stab you. But you get used to it. After a while, you kind of get used to everything being hard. And, and then you get back from your trip. I remember this feeling very well. You get back from your trip and you put down your packs and you see the car. And so you dig through to find your keys and hope you didn't lose them out there. And you, you open the car and you sit down in that chair, that comfy car chair. And it's like, this is the most comfortable thing I've sat on in a week. That's when you appreciate what comfort is. Because you spent time with what is hard. And it's, it's always, if you always have it easy, and everything is comfortable, then comfortable isn't comfortable, it's just normal. But if you've been to where it hurts, where you struggle, where life isn't easy, and you don't get it easy, and maybe the hard stuff keeps going on and on, then you know what it feels like when it stops to have comfort. One of the things with a lot of kids, and I'll admit sometimes too with adults, is when they're along camping, they'll have breakdowns. Every now and then you'll get one who'll have a breakdown. Just totally stop. They'll just, they'll just stop moving. They'll sit down in the middle of the trail and just collapse and I ain't going, and you can't make me. And you try to reason, you know, uh, you go, Lou, we're, we're two, three days at least away from the car. You can't just sit here. You know, I'm not moving, I ain't going anywhere. Um, you'll die if you just sit here forever. You have to keep moving. I'm not going. And it, when I first started doing it, I would try to reason and provide reasons, but clearly sitting down in the middle of the woods and doing nothing is not a reasonable act to begin with. We're past reason at this point, right? We're, it's a breakdown. There, there, there's just too much to process, too much struggle, too much desperation, you just give up. And, and so, you know, so I, I gave up on the trying to do logic and reason. I refused to go all old school on them. Hey, who need any pansies on our camping trip? You get your butt up there now! What do you guys think? Do you think you should get moving? Go it, do it, right? Old school, we'll peer pressure you, shame you, mock you, ridicule you, bully you till you move. That always gets people in better moods, doesn't it? I mean, if they're already shutting down, yelling at them more, it's like coming up to a turtle and yelling boo. You know what the turtle does? It doesn't move faster. Whoop. 
What they need is a way to get out of that lock that they're in, to get out of that mental block and start seeing that, yes, you can get through this. You can make it. You can do this. You know, you made it this far, you can make it the rest of the trip. And what you can do in that moment is give them some comfort when all they feel is hardship. You can, get, you can be there, and you can, you can let them know that you've been through what they've been through, that you know that it's hard, that you don't think they're being hysterical, that you don't think they're wusses, and that you're not going to do any shaming or bullying. You speak a word of comfort. Let them know they're not alone, that we as a group care about you so that then they can have the confidence to rejoin. You need to speak a word of comfort to counter that feeling of hardship. And when you speak that word, it changes things. It changes things because it suddenly unlocks your mind to be able to have imagination again and to be able to think of things and see possibilities, to be able to see yourself finishing that trail and walking down there and getting back into that car. It opens up your imagination when all you feel is stress and hardship, your imagination shuts down. The word of comfort has the power to unlock and set us free. I think it's a God thing. It's where the spirit comes in and moves our imaginations. And it's imagination that keeps us going when things are hard. It's what God says in Isaiah 40. It's in our Old Testament reading today. The prophet says, Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. People of God had it easy. At least the upper classes did in Jerusalem before the war. They had it easy. They were rich. They were powerful. And they got cocky. And they thought to themselves, you know, God will never let us get into trouble. God will, ne God will never let the city get sacked. We're immune. We can do anything we want. They, they were like, you know, trust fund babies. You know, they, they, get the, they get that new, brand new sports car from daddy. And then they take it out and they drive 100 miles an hour, get pulled over from a cop when they run it into the ditch. You know, and, and then they, they just assume that, well, you know, Daddy will make a phone call to the police chief and remind him how much he gave to the booster this year. And Daddy will make a call to the judge and remind him how, what the good times they had back in the frat. And then Daddy will then write a check and just get another new car for you. So why should I slow down? I'm living the good life. Right? That's what the people were like. They were very, very comfortable, and they thought God was their trust fund daddy. And they stopped looking to God, to how to follow the word and be faithful and take care of the people they lived with and take care of their city and take care of the widow and the orphan and the family farmer and the peasants, and they just thought they had it good and God was their bodyguard. They thought God would give comfort to the comfortable and chastise the afflicted. 
and they had it backwards. God's not your trust fund daddy. He doesn't care about your creature comforts that you got at someone else's expense. He cares about the someone else. And since you won't listen, he's going to let the cops drag you off and let you sit there for a while. And that's what happened. The Babylonians came in, they sacked the city, they took the people away for 75 years of slavery. And the interesting thing about it is they actually did that twice. The first time they came into the city and they took all the rich and powerful and educated and left everybody else. So, uh, and those were the first people hauled off into slavery. It was when they did, rebelled a second time that the city got sacked. But now, the prophet is there in Jerusalem and he's speaking to those who are living as slaves, who've gotten numb to the situation, kind of like when you get a rock in your shoe, you know, a little rock, and it hurts in the beginning, but after a while you just keep, you know, you kind of callous around it, and it hurts, but your mind doesn't think about it. That's what had happened to the people after 75 years of slavery. It wasn't pleasant, but it wasn't so horrible, so they kind of got used to it. And God comes back to the people this time, and it's not a word of warning, it's a word of comfort. And he says through the prophet, comfort Comfort my people, because you have paid your price. You did your time. You have been through the ringer. You have suffered. You've lost your creature comforts and your privileges, and you've had your cockiness stripped away. And now it's time to remember that I, the Lord God, am here with you. And I believe you can do this. And I will be with you when you do this. And I will be the soft place for you to land when the world around you is nothing but hard. And that's when the word of comfort means something. When we've experienced it, the hardship first. It's why I think it's, somewhat, it's easier for someone who's sleeping on a sidewalk underneath a bridge to talk about how the Holy Spirit is real and alive. Than, to, than it is for somebody who thinks they've got it made. And I'm good, I got, I got everything, I don't need God. They might turn to God if they feel their comfort is threatened. Right? God, please don't, please don't make me downscale my house. I remember this in Chicago. People would come into the local priest. I remember the priest, he said, that right after the dot-com bubble burst, people come into him and they'd go, Father, can the church help me out? I'm about ready to default on my mortgage. Can you help me with a mortgage payment? The father would, I'm not going to try to imitate his Irish accent, but he'd say, well, what's your mortgage payment? And they'd say five to $10,000 a month. And he'd kind of go, oh. And, you know, and I'm, ta and, and I'm talking to the priest, and I'm saying, well, why don't you just tell him to move to Mount Prospect? Just downscale, buy a cheaper house. And he said, when he'd suggest that, their eyes would glaze over. Like he had said, why don't you saw your right hand off and eat it? They're like, I can't move over there. How will my kids get into Harvard? And you know, you want to jump in and go, well, actually, if you go to a Title I school, Harvard likes that. So that'll increase your chances of getting into Harvard. They got lots of kids from North Shore schools. They love, they love the Title I stuff. You're, if you really want to get in, go to 
PS 235 in Chicago. They'll love that story on the application essay, but they never believed me. I moved to Tucson. Uh, one of my college students, yeah, she actually went to public and got into Harvard. So it's true. But anyways, that's a little aside. But the fear was the fear of downscaling and losing some of that comfort. And they wanted the church to intervene to rescue them from a slight discomfort. The father was very tactful and told them there just isn't funds for that. But all that aside, there's a turning to God to keep me from experience hardship, and there's a turning to God to find comfort in hardship. The second one is where you're going to hear the voice of the prophet, where you're going to hear the voice of the Spirit saying those gentle words, comfort, comfort my people, for you have paid your price. Amen.